We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio in Taipei this evening by Michael Fahey. Great to be back, Gavin. And by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And great to be here. Tonight we'll be discussing the latest China spy case to hit the headlines, this time involving a serving Army Aviation and Special Forces Command Lieutenant Colonel, KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoi returning from his friendship tour to Japan, the Taiwan People's Party getting flack for an English language slogan, the National Police Agency playing down an ROC flag incident at the World Police and Fire Games, and the Chinese Taipei Football Association seeking public input for a new nickname and slogan for the island's national soccer teams. But we'll begin with lawmakers passing a series of amendments to three gender equality laws as part of government efforts to curb sexual harassment following a string of allegations that kick-started a hashtag MeToo movement here in Taiwan. Amendments were passed to the Act of Gender Equality in Employment, the Gender Equality Education Act and the Sexual Harassment Prevention Act. And I spoke with Judge Jia Chen Wen of the Judicial UN's Criminal Department about those revisions. So good evening, Judge Wen. Good evening, Gavin. So, obviously, you were the person, one of the people, I guess, that reviewed the amendments to these sexual equality laws. Obviously, there was a lot of amendments. They're big laws. What was your? What were the main points that you took away from these amendments? Okay. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that the sexual harassment laws uh, include three laws. Uh, sexual Harassment Prevention Act and the Gender Equality Employment Act and Gender Equality Education Act. And uh, the purpose of those three acts uh, are to prevent the sexual harassment and to protect the right of the victims and to protect the human dignity and also to uphold the gender equality and eliminate the gender discrimination. And so the uh, three acts were passed by the Legislative Yuan on July 31st. And then there are several aspects uh, of the revision. So what were some of the main aspects of the revisions to the Act of Gender Equality in Employment? Well, uh, first of all, the, uh, uh, the amendment expanded the application of the sexual harassment laws. Because uh, in the past, the sexual harassment laws, uh, especially the uh, gender equality employment law, only apply in the sexual harassment occurred during the working hours. But uh, under the new law, the Gender Equality Employment Act uh, also applied to the sexual harassment occurred during the non-working hours when the employee is subject to the persistent sexual harassment by the same person in the employer's organization during the non-working hours. And also this, this is the first aspect of the revision. And the second aspect of this revision is to uh, improve the compliant mechanism. And the companies are required to report a sexual harassment complaints and the results of their investigations to the local city or county labor department. Because uh, in the past, if the victims are unsatisfied with the investigation result made by the companies, they have no right to file an appeal to the labor department of the city or county. But uh, under the new law, they have the right to file an appeal to the labor department. And what about the Gender Equality in Education Act? Well, under the Gender Equality Education Act, uh, schools or the authorities 
should inform the victims of their rights and interests and various remedies. And also, they should provide legal assistance and referrals to the social welfare resources when necessary. And this is uh, a protection measures for the victims. And also, well, there are still some other aspects of the sexual harassment laws, like the extension of the limitation period of the complaint. Because under the old law, the limitation period of the complaint is one year. But under the new law, limitation period extends to two years for the general sexual harassment and three years for the power sexual harassment. I think the main purpose to amend the three laws is to deal with the power sexual harassment. And power sexual harassment refers to the sexual harassment uh, committed by a person who takes advantage of his authority or power over the victim who is under his supervision, assistance, care, and because of family, guardian, tutor, educational, training, official or occupational relationship, or other similar relationships. Under the new law, the uh, there are three measures to deal with the power sexual harassment, an administrative measure and a criminal measure and civil measure. And the punishment of uh, the power sexual harassment increases. And um, the administrative fine increases to $600,000. And also the criminal punishment increased to one half. And the civil court may also impose the punitive damages ranging from one to three times the amount of the damages. And also there's a significant revision to strengthen the protection measures of the victims. And so for the government agencies or organizations or employers who are aware of the sexual harassment, they should take the immediate effective correctional and comedial measures, such as assisting victims in filing the complaints and preserving relevant evidence, and assisting in notifying the police to arrive at the scene, and also reviewing the safety of the environment, and um, to take measures to prevent the recurrence of the sexual harassment, and to provide or refer victims for counseling, medical, or psychological consultation, social welfare resources, and other necessary services, and also to uh, investigate the sexual harassment, so to uh, discipline the perpetrator appropriately, and also to adjust the job duty or workplace appropriately. So those are the major uh, points of the revision of the sexual harassment law. That was me in conversation with Judge Jia Chen Wen of the Judicial UN's Criminal Department. Moving on now, the latest case of alleged espionage for China is raising alarm bells as it involves a serving lieutenant colonel with the Army Aviation and Special Forces Command. Now, the High Court ordered the officer detained on suspicion of recruiting former and serving military officers to collect defence intelligence for China on Wednesday of this week. Prosecutors say the officer recruited active and retired military personnel in an attempt to build a spy network to gather military intelligence and pass it on to China via a middleman. The lieutenant colonel was arrested and questioned by officials from the Investigation Bureau following raids on several locations, and those locations included the 601st Brigade's headquarters. Now, the alleged middleman has also been detained, while four retired military personnel have been released on bail. The Ministry of National Defence says it's, it's sad that military personnel would allegedly sell out Taiwan, but it's not released any details concerning the type of information that may have been collected or passed on. Now, the Ministry of Justice is saying that it will continue to count, carry out counterintelligence efforts 
rights within the military and also keep protecting classified projects and making them ensure they're kept secret. While Presidential Office Deputy Secretary General Alex Huang told reporters that the alleged actions were shameful and the case should be investigated thoroughly and there should be severe sentences for anyone found guilty. Now, treason by an active duty military personnel for a passing confidential information to China currently carries a maximum 10-year prison sentence. So, Michael, obviously it's not the first time. This seems to happen every few months, but of course, this is a serving lieutenant colonel with the Army Aviation and Special Forces Command. Yes, that's right, Gavin. The unusual thing about this case is that he is a serving officer. Uh, there's a, a constant stream of these cases, but typically they involve retired officers who've been somehow recruited or some say entrapped overseas who then come back to Taiwan and try to build up some kind of network and usually get caught in the process or so the national security agencies say. So the fact that he's a serving military officer is unusual and it's my understanding that that's a pretty important military unit as well. Uh, this is renewed discussions of uh, the severity of sentences that are given for these kinds of cases. Um, the average sentence for an espionage case is 1.5 years, despite the 10-year cap that you just referred to. And that's because the Taiwanese courts are generally lenient to first-time offenders and will sentence toward the bottom of the range, and they'll reduce it even further if you confess and cooperate, which I think most defendants do for exactly that reason. Uh, so there's, there, there's a renewed discussion of whether or not these penalties should be as severe as they are in the U.S., where 20 years or life or something like that is not at all uh, atypical. I think many people probably find that odd that you're, if you're a serving soldier and you sell secrets to the enemy, you should get more than like one and a half years. Well, I, I, I would contrast it to how severe Taiwan is about corruption. There was a famous case last year or a couple of years ago where uh, a, a serving officer, you know, overcharged a bill at a restaurant by about 2,500 NT and was sentenced to four and a half years in prison for this offense. And eventually his sentence had, he had to be pardoned by President Tsai. Or you look at the many cases of council members or legislators uh, who steal the money that's intended for their legislative assistance. There's a constant flow of these cases. And and the penalties for these are severe. I don't know why anybody does it. It's, it's five years, 10 years, 12 years. Uh, and so, yes, an average sentence of 1.5 for espionage, which seems to be a much greater threat to Taiwan, uh, does seem a little light. Yeah, I agree completely with uh, Michael's comments there. Um, this is a weird case because, you know, I'm, I'm personally not a big fan of extended prison sentences for most things. Um, I, I, I find it counter counterproductive, but this is a case where people's lives are at stake. And in this particular case, they were responsible. They're based out of Taiyuan, but they were responsible for the air defense of Taipei. And the and in, in such a case, you know, we're right now effectively, as far as the Chinese are concerned, we're already at war. It's not a kinetic war, but it's 
the, the United Front views uh, Taiwan as a legitimate target. Taiwan is being actively undermined uh, via propaganda, via uh, stealing of industrial secrets, via espionage, and of course the gray zone uh, war tactics that are going on with the military incursions into the ADIZ. And so when anybody is giving over secrets and when they're involved in the act of defense of Taiwan citizens, I really do think that these these sentences need to be they, they need to be they need to be much stronger, and they need to be the kinds of sentences that that will be or should ensure much more caution on the part of the people who violate them, um, because these are the kinds of decisions that could lead to thousands of people's deaths. So I do believe in this case, uh, the, these laws need to be much more stringent. They need to be much more. Uh, much more uh, effective, and because these are people in the military, they are able to educate them very directly on what exactly the penalties are, because they are within a very controlled environment. So they can be informed that you know if you do X, you will receive a prison sentence of up to X number of years. So I do believe that the 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 prison sentences need to be much uh, stronger and stricter in this case and to ensure much more preventative effect. Now, also, obviously, now the good news is, is that these people were caught. You know, all, that always, of course, begs questions of how many people aren't caught. And, you know, as Michael noted, there are a lot of these cases, but usually they involved retired people. And that this was active duty is really, truly alarming. So the question is, can we see or will we see reforms within the military and then within the judicial system and the laws that would make it so that the, the there's a much more preventative system in place to ensure that that not there's no way to pre- prevent this from happening going forward necessarily but that that people will will have much more serious doubts or fears should they enter into such arrangements with foreign um, with foreign agents going forward. Now, obviously, the, there's a big reason historically why these rules are not quite so stringent and not quite so uh, not quite as, as strict as we, you might expect. And of course, that goes back to you know the martial law era. You know, if you go back to the 1950s, if there's some, if they even suspected that you might maybe have had contact with a communist agent, that you'd find yourself with a bullet in the back of your head in a park. You know, um, and so of course there's kind of an allergic reaction to having that kind of having very strict or stringent rules in place. But I think that really the situation has changed again. That we need to start being a lot more proactive than we have been in recent years. And Michael, I mean, do you think this, if the government decided to amend these current laws, it would get cross-party backing in the legislature and they would be passed quite quickly? There would not have to be an extraordinary session for them to pass them. It takes time to get any legislation passed, uh, even if there's a high degree of consensus on it. Uh, I agree with Donovan that... Uh, that that long prison sentences don't don't necessarily uh, accomplish as much as people hope they might. 
Um, I suspect that a faster way to go about doing this, though, would be to get together with the judicial yuan and uh, issue new sentence sentencing guidelines that uh, you know aren't quite so lenient at first, and just use the existing sentences that they're already that they already have. And moving on now, a new Taipei city mayor and KMT presidential candidate Ho Yoi arrived back in Taiwan Wednesday following his three-day friendship tour to Tokyo as he seeks to shore up his credentials ahead of next January's election. While in Japan, he met with politicians, members of political parties, Taiwanese expats, and also visited a 120-year-old restaurant that's run by a descendant of a close friend of ROC founder Sun Yat-sen. Now, Ho also met with Japanese media outlets while in Tokyo and speaking during talks with members of the Japan Republic of China Diet Members Consultative Council, Ho said that he's seeking to make Taiwan a risk reducer. Speaking during talks with the chairman of the Policy Research Council of Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party, Ho said that he's visiting Tokyo in order to convey the importance of maintaining stability in the Taiwan Strait in order to make both countries safer. Now, meeting with Japanese media outlets, he stressed that if elected, it will strengthen Taiwan's democratic system and national defence capabilities and hold substantive dialogue to to lower the risk of cross-strait conflict. He also reiterated that he's opposed to both Taiwan independence and one country, two systems, and supports a version of the 1992 consensus that conforms with the ROC constitution. He also told Japan's Ashai Shimbun newspaper that Taiwan's participation in China-proposed democratic negotiations is currently not feasible. Now, that statement comes from reports here that Beijing has been inviting China-friendly politicians to engage in the so-called democratic negotiations. So, Donovan, I mean, what did you take away from Mr. Ho's trip to Japan and some of his comments he made there? Obviously, some of them were a bit predictable. <laughs> That's an understatement, Gavin. Um, yes, it is, it, it, this is primarily uh, directed at a domestic Taiwan audience. Um, obviously, Ho is traveling to Japan, and this is to underscore or tr to try and burnish his uh, foreign his foreign affairs credentials, which is an area which Ho is, is notably weak. Um, he's not known for having any credentials in this area, so this is an important trip for him politically to underscore that he has at least some knowledge and some interest in uh, foreign affairs. Now, as far as his comments, you're absolutely right. Almost everything that he said is everything that he said to domestic audiences. Now, the, there's a few somewhat interesting things about this. He did buck his party on one statement, and that is when it comes to the release of irradiated water from the Fukushima nuclear plant. Um, he said that he respected the IAEA's judgment that the the plan that that Japan has to release irradiated water from the nuclear plant is acceptable under UN standards. And he said he respects their judgment. Now, actually, officially, the KMT party stance is that they are absolutely opposed to it. Now, of course, the way that the ocean currents go, it's not going to come down to Taiwan anyway. But that is the official KMT stance. So in that particular instance, he bucked the KMT's party line. But otherwise, he basically, he did meet with 36 lawmakers, and he said that he that they all told him, and, and he said that everyone that he met with said that people in Japan are very, very concerned about a Taiwan crisis would become a Japan crisis, and that he understood this. Now, his answers, of course, were very predictable, but it is good that he is, he has gone to Japan. KMT leaders 
historically have been a little bit more cagey when it comes to Japan-Taiwan relations than the DPP have. Um, as Michael Turton will often put it, is that they, they often use Japan ties to create intentional irritants. Um, for example, during the Ma administration, while they did work constructively with Japan to build fishing agreements, um, for example, uh, but periodically he would bring up, for example, the Senkaku Islands and Taiwan's claim to them, or the Diaoyu ties as they're referred to here in Taiwan. So they would. So the the KMT led governments have have always historically had kind of a, a slightly edgy kind of feel when it comes to diplomatic relations with with Japan, and I believe that this is the first time a KMT uh, a, K, a KMT presidential candidate has gone to Japan for I believe fourteen years or something like that. So it's been quite a while. And of course, Ho is ethnically—he's uh, a Hoklo-speaking. Uh, you know, his and his family has been in Taiwan for hundreds of years, and they tend to be a little bit more positive on Japan ties than 49er families who fled the Chinese Civil War. So he may be sending something of a message to middle, um, you know, median voters in Taiwan by going to Japan first rather than the United States. I was a little surprised, perhaps, that he so strongly and closely endorsed the former Ma administration's policy of no unification, uh, no war, and, uh, and so on. I thought that possibly after he had secured the nomination at the end of July, that he might show a little bit of daylight. On the other hand, perhaps it's not that surprising, given that Ma's former campaign advisor and one of his main advisors in general is also uh, Ho's campaign uh, advisor. Um, but I, I, I did, I was, I was struck by that. Another thing that he said was that uh, that um, you know that that relation that the military threat from the PRC was not entirely the fault of one side, which I took to mean that. Uh, he thinks that Taiwan is also at fault at creating uh, the recent situation, uh, which I, I suppose that since he's a candidate running against the existing administration, he needs to be opposing their their policies, and 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 that's one way of uh, doing it. But I think that most of the world sees the agency in the Taiwan-China situation as largely coming from uh, the side of the PRC. Finally, uh, he did make an interesting comment about he rejected. Uh, so so China has, has proposed that this is the first year of uh, consultative uh, democratic consultations, Minju Xiexiang, on the two countries, uh, one, one country, two systems uh, for Taiwan. And Ho specifically said that he, dis he said many times before that he, he, he uh, uh, is opposed to one country, two systems. But he particularly said here that he opposed uh, democratic consultations, um, which I thought was interesting because democratic consultations is a is a uh, a term of art in the People's Republic of China uh, for sort of gathering opinions from stakeholders as long as you agree with the basic principles of the Communist Party. 
I suspect that what he is objecting to is that if he is elected president, he doesn't really want uh, local county leaders and uh, other members of civil society striking their own private side deals with with China. So he's trying to head that off at the pass. Uh, but it did it did it did show more knowledge of PRC matters than I expected from him. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and the Taiwan People's Party was forced to yank an English-language slogan from its website after a Taipei-based American journalist took to social media to point out that in the West it had some rather racist connotations. The slogan in question read, Vote White, Vote Right. And the American journalist in question wrote on social media, the Taiwan People's Party accidentally shares a slogan with an American white supremacist political party. Now, the party of the presidential hopeful Kerwin Zhe removed the slogan from its website, with a spokeswoman for the party, Lin Zhe-Yu, telling reporters that the slogan had referred to the colour white, which we basically knew anyway, and the T- which the TPP brands itself as, which, of course, is also a thing, but obviously... In English, people don't notice it here. Now, she also said it was supposed to mean that vote for the power of white is the right choice. And she went on to say that Taiwanese people are not familiar with the concept of white supremacy. Now, that comment, well, some local folks here took a bit of irie to that comment. As they said, it likely says that maybe the TPP is hinting that people here are rather naive on how they understand the outside world. Now, just as the TPP thought the issue was gone away, DPP Jilong City Councillor Zhang Zhihao took to social media to say that it wasn't the first time that Kerr had used the word white in English to promote his political ideology. As Zhang said that when Kerr was running in the 2014 Taipei mayoral election, he published a couple of books and gave them the English language names, those being the white power and the white power too. So, Michael, obviously, you know, for local people that don't really read English and get the nuances of it, not a big thing. No. But, of course, if you're trying to run for president and you're meant to be a bit more international, I should say, it might look a bit stupid. I, I, I think it shows what we already knew, that the Kerr campaign is not extremely internationalised or sophisticated in these matters. Uh on, on the other hand, um, you know, the color white has been his political brand from the beginning uh, because he says it's colorless. He's trying to break through the the, uh, you know, the ideological or partisan uh, politics that have. And it's also associated with the fact that he's a doctor because, of course, they wear white coats. Uh, so it's it's completely part of his brand. And I don't see how this is going to cause him any political damage the campaign also i think reacted gracefully and and removed it uh right away uh but donovan is the expert on uh political matters and so perhaps he will have different views no i think i actually i think michael you're absolutely right um you summed it up uh, perfectly um yes i mean obviously the color white there is is he's trying to use it to break through the traditional blue green and contrast his brand uh, and associate his party with that, with the color white. As and it's also a color, of course, it's associated with cleanliness and purity. And he wants to associate it with, as Michael correctly noted, with his medical profession. And of course, being practical and logical and following scientific principles is another element of the TPP's branding. 
So that they use the color white is very much on brand for the TPP and for Kuh personally. So, I mean, obviously he and the party did not mean anything, you know, racist at all when they came out with that. In fact, the day that they posted it, I, I noticed it on the on their website, but I didn't tweet or exit, I suppose as you call it now, about it, uh, because I, yeah, I viewed it within the local political context, um, but I did chuckle a little that this is not going to go down well with an international audience. Um, but, I mean, ultimately, uh, Michael is absolutely correct. I don't think this is going to cause... Uh, the TPP any harm domestically um, because they're going to be voters are going to view it ex- in the context that it was meant um, obviously and nobody is accusing Cohen's of supporting white supremacy or anything along these lines um, now as far as him using white power that was obviously not the best choice but uh, you know he possibly could have gone with white force or other things that are not actively used um, by, you know, white supremacists. But I, you know, again, there's a certain point at which local politicians shouldn't have to be entirely or too sensitive to, they should be somewhat sensitive and how it comes across overseas. But at a certain point, you know, you have to take into account that this is the local culture. This is the, these are the local sensibilities that are being translated into another language and that, you know, people here should be fundamentally focused on their own culture and not overly concerned with other cultures. You know, I yes, ideally, you know, choose your words a little more carefully, perhaps to, you know, for overseas sensibilities, but ultimately keep in mind, you know, your own culture first. And the National Police Agency this week got itself into a bit of hot water after one of its officials prevented a group of Taiwanese firefighters from displaying the ROC flag at the World Police and Fire Games in Winnipeg, Canada. Now, criticism of the agency came after Taoyuan City firefighter Huang Yomin took to social media to complain that he and other firefighters were told by a police agency official to put away the national flag during the event's opening ceremony. Now, Huang said the official who requested they not display the flag was in fact the head of Taiwan's delegation to the event and apparently he used explicit and threatening language to tell him to put that flag away. Now apparently the official was also wearing a shirt with the words Chinese Taipei on the back and according to Huang referred to the Olympic model while requesting that he not display the ROC flag at the event. Now the National Police Agency issued a statement saying that it did not prevent athletes from showing the ROC flag at the event but Interior Minister Lin Yo Chung wasn't having any of that and he said that he instructed the NPA Head, Huang Ming Chao to reassure Taiwanese participants at the Police and Fire Games that they can proudly display the national flag. So, we, Michael, we usually have this much more global and much more bigger events than the, the Police and Fire Games. But now the flag issue has made the Police and Fire Games. Oh, the flag issue comes up at the most minor and uh, uh, unknown sporting events that and 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 professional conferences and and anything that you can think of uh uh the prc's uh persistence on this issue is 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 very impressive uh the the 
you know, I suppose the concern here was that uh, there have been cases in the past where athletes displayed the flag and then lost their medals or weren't able to participate in future games. On the other hand, uh, I think that uh, for the current administration, uh, the chance to stand up for the flag uh whatever the results are for the individual athletes was just too tempting to pass up yeah i mean michael's correct i mean this goes down to the smallest you know the prc is is active at the even the smallest levels i mean you know they've changed a a colorado high school's website at one point there was a, a case in australia where um you know in, in where immigrant stu- students put their their fl- you know, their flags on a on a, I believe it was a cow they painted their flags on the cow and the Chinese gov- government representatives have an absolute mental breakdown and you know and and demanded they remove it so I mean you know so Michael's right I mean the the, you know, the PRC will freak out about everything on every level, no matter how petty, no matter how small. And probably that police officer who objected was keeping that in mind and felt responsible as the head of the delegation. But on the other hand, you know, at some point, I don't think the administration had really anything to do with this, Um, uh, you know, but at some point there is... Uh, if you can't stand up for your country, stand up or represent yourself accurately as who you are and the country that you come from, then there's something just fundamentally wrong with the situation. So, you know, I'm glad that, you know, after that initial incident, that future both the police and firefighters used the national flag and displayed them proudly and, you know, and it be, this being in Canada, there really wasn't much that the that the People's Republic of China could do about it. The part I thought was a little bit interesting, though, is the relationship between these officials and the athletes. Uh, you know, I think that sometimes that uh, the Taiwanese bureaucrats and government. Uh, view the athletes as their employees uh, rather than and and feel that they're in a position to order them around, uh, which I don't think accords them the respect that is uh, due to them. You're you're right, I think, in most cases, but that wouldn't be the case in this one, uh, because they are, in this particular case, this is, they're self-funded, meaning they were not funded by, you know, normally you get, you know, the Chinese Taipei, you know, Sports Association for X, Y, or Z, but in this case, this was the fire. You know, the firefighters and police. It was an entirely self-funded. It was not uh, organized. It was not. This was not a uh, an official government uh, delegation. So, you know, they had to pay for their own tickets. They had to pay for their own participation. And so, really, the you know the central government, I think, had no role in this whatsoever. Well, I take your point, but then why would? Uh, but there was an official from the national police agency there, and he was kind of bossing people around. Was, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, but you know, I mean, he he was not. I mean, that seems to be on his own recognizance, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure, I'm sure you're right. He felt that you know, he felt responsible uh, to you know try and uphold international rules he's probably sort of out of his element um 
you know, he's obviously not properly trained for this kind of thing. Um, this being, you know, a very sort of ad hoc and self-organized kind of event, kind of thing. And so he probably felt that he had to uphold, you know, international standards as it would be by, say, you know, the Chinese Taipei Soccer Association or whatever, you know, the sports association it would be. So he's probably trying to intentionally model himself and his behavior on that kind of thing. Um, but technically he didn't have to. But probably, I'm sure you're right that that's what he was modeling himself on. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure that he felt that he was following the rules and trying to do the right thing. And that's a yeah. good thing if you're a policeman. Exactly. That's what you should do. That's what you should do if you're a policeman. So there you go. Anyway, before we go this week and staying with sports to coincide with the FIFA Women's World Cup, the Chinese Taipei Football Association is seeking help from the public to choose a nickname and a slogan for both the men's and women's national soccer teams. Now, according to the local soccer governing body, it's hoping to rally support for the teams from soccer fans and friends by asking them to pick a name that can create a positive image for all age levels of Taiwan soccer in international competitions. Now, the choices for a nickname are the Island Fighters... The Blue Mags, in reference to the Taiwan Blue Magpie, the Blue Wings and the Blue Claws. Now, prior to recording this show, the Blue Wings was leading with 270 votes, while the Island Fighters was in second place with 139 votes. As for the slogan, while the public has been asked to choose from five options, and the choice in both English and Chinese is somewhat a bit skew with when you actually translate them from language to language. Now, the slogans are in English, Back Your Blue Mags. Now, the Chinese language version of that reads, Support Your National Football Team. Now, the other one is claws out or claw attack which I guess attack is not very sporting so claws out is probably better there fight for your dream run till goal in English which actually means in Chinese run until the goal is scored and akalalima which comes from the language of Taiwan's indigenous army people and apparently means keep fighting and apparently that's leading the slogan poll Michael so what a good nickname for a sports team there we got the island fighters the blue mags the blue wings or the blue claws well i only have i'm opposed to the uh regretfully opposed to the blue mag uh the blue magpies one uh i learn from a birder friend that uh, while I'm very partial to blue magpies, they're really only prevalent in northern Taiwan, so it wouldn't really be representative of the whole island to make mm-hmm. them uh, the, uh, the the team's uh, bird. As for the slogan, uh, I really like the last uh, indigenous phrase. Akalalima. Akalalima. Go for it, basically. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, I think it's easy to pronounce in English and it's distinctive and says something about Taiwan. And Donovan, where do you stand on this? The blue mags, the blue wings, the blue claws or the island fighters? I completely agree with Michael's comments there. I think the, you know, and also I'd add that, you know, when you throw in the blue, you you go right into Taiwan's domestic domestic politics. So I, I would drop the anything with blue and that really only leaves island fighters but then again taiwan has multiple islands uh so that's again that that's slightly problematic but okay um but i do think that you know the blue magpies are representative of only northern taiwan you throw in the blue and suddenly you're you're you sound like you're and this is of course the the chinese taipei football association uh, promoting this, and so it just leaves a, a political taste 
that I feel like just doesn't doesn't work. So I, I would go with the indigenous slogan and island fighters. I would like to add one other uh, possible nickname. I think they should go for yellow-throated Martins. <laughs> and what, what type of bird is that, Michael? It's it's not a bird. It's a small uh, weasel-like creature, which is extraordinarily agile and uh, uh, found in Taiwan's higher mountains. I think it's called Huang Diaoling in Chinese. How about the Formosan black bears? They're a little slow, don't you think? Uh, and that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Michael Fahey. So long, Gavin. And in Taijong by Donovan Smith. Great to be back. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to one of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.